Lord, as we look in John's gospel this morning, too, I pray that you'd be filling up our spiritual cups. You'd be challenging us, enlightening us, opening our eyes to see the things you mean for each one of us, no more and no less. In Jesus' name, amen. We are in John 12 again this morning. Winding down, by the way, we'll wind up John 12, Lord willing, next week. We've been through most of John. We've done the Upper Room Discourse. We've done John 1 through 12 through the end of next week, uh, all but the last few chapters of John's Gospel. We're going to be in verses 27 through 33. Uh, Part of the trouble with teaching John is that, you know, you describe some people as a mile wide and an inch deep, and the trouble with John is that he's an inch wide and a mile deep. So... Oftentimes you pick and choose what you're going to emphasize when you go through a text, which is what I'm doing this morning. It's not a lengthy passage, but I'll I'll primarily highlight just two things. We'll make some comments on some others. And if you remember the context of this, in John 12, we've seen Jesus ride into Jerusalem and be hailed as the Messiah on Palm Sunday. This is that same week. This could be the same day. It might be a little later in the week. We're not entirely clear. But he's been received by Israel as the Messiah in Jerusalem. And then a little later on, some Greeks have come up and said, hey, we want to see Jesus. Last week we looked at that passage in which Jesus talked about becoming a grain of wheat and that if you saved your soul, you'd lose your life. But if you were willing to give up your soul, you'd gain your life. And that's the context that we bring into verse 27 where we start this morning, verses 27 through 33. Jesus says, My soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said, it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the Time for the judgment of this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. This is the last week of Jesus' life. And even though he was just received as the Messiah, he knows where this train is stopping. And for him, it stops on Thursday and Friday, essentially. And he knows, though, he was welcomed Sunday as Messiah that he'll be crucified as a criminal on Friday. So it's a short distance from the time he's speaking to his crucifixion, and he's aware of this. And so he's been talking about becoming that grain of wheat that loses its life like a grain buried in the ground, and only if it's buried does it produce life, but it has to die to do that. And he's saying that, of course, in the context knowing he's the grain of wheat that's going to be buried on Friday. And so his initial thought here is, I'm troubled, I know what's coming, I know where I'm going in just a few days, I'm troubled, and what should I pray? And so this is kind of rhetorical, but he says, should I pray, Father, save me from this hour? Should that be my prayer? And you know, if you or I were there, and we're aware of what's coming, I mean, it's the physical torture. If you've seen the movie The Passion of the Christ, you you gain a pretty good sense of physically what that was like. But beyond the physical element coming up that week, he knows also there's the far greater issue of when he becomes sin on the cross for us, he is separated from the Father. Now, this had never happened. You know, Jesus on the earth was still united with the Father the whole time of, of his uh, sojourn, so to speak, on the earth, always with the Father. 
But on the cross, the Father leaves him. And that's why you have Jesus call out, of course, you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They're separated. So Jesus knows what's coming. And so his initial thought is saving his soul, in the words of the passage that precedes us, saving his soul would mean saying, Father, save me from this hour. Keep me from what's coming. I don't want to go down that road. Save me. And he follows up by saying, though, but, Lord, instead of giving me what I want, Father, glorify your name. So my initial thought, if I was saving my soul, would be, Father, save me from this hour. Save me from the suffering that's ahead, days away. But I know that's exactly the reason I've come to the earth. So, Father, instead, glorify your name. It's interesting, you know, in the Gospels, what one writer does or does not include. And John doesn't include the Gethsemane pictures that you see in the Synoptic Gospels. But this sounds quite similar to that. You remember when later in the week, when they leave the Last Supper and they go to the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus is there praying by himself. And Luke tells us he's so stressed that his sweat uh, takes on at least the appearance of blood. This is... This is physically possible for this to happen, that plasma becomes part of your sweat under great stress. And he prays there in the garden, Lord, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Here in John, he says, can I get away from the hour, the hour of suffering in the garden? He says, can you take this cup that represents suffering, could you take that away from me? If it's possible, let it go on by. But then he concludes by saying, but not my will, but your will be done. And it's essentially the same thing he's saying here. In the garden, he says, not my will, but your will. Here he says, glorify your name. They both amount to the same thing. Jesus is saying he's laying aside his own desires and asking that God would instead glorify or honor himself. My wife is fond of some books in which the parson, I think it's an Episcopal priest, Father Tim, Father Tim calls this the prayer that never fails. That is, when you or I like Jesus, when we say, Lord, not my will, but your will be done, or when we say, Lord, uh, don't save me from this, but glorify your name, that's the prayer that God will always honor. It's the prayer that never fails. When we pray that, we know God's going to answer. By the way, this is on Mother's Day. It's good to remember this prayer, uh, Father, glorify yourself. That's a prayer that moms pray all the time and sometimes need to. Maybe even more moms who get up early and retire late. You know where the moms have to, in a sense, die to what they'd rather choose. Father, save me from getting up. Father, save me from staying up. Father, you know, cleaning up, whatever. They pray this prayer. This is what you need to come back to. Father, glorify yourself. And sometimes that's, it's a difficult thing. It requires moms to lay their life down again and choose to be the seed in the earth again. Uh, But that's just like Jesus. Christ is the example in that. Well, in verse 28, Jesus makes his prayer. Jesus addresses heaven, Father, glorify your name. And heaven answers back. Verse 28, a voice came out of heaven. I have glorified it, past tense, and I will glorify it, future tense. God speaks from heaven. This is unusual. When God speaks back to Jesus, he says, I already have glorified my name. And I think what he means is this, Jesus, my son, in your life on the earth so far, I've already been honored and glorified. And then I will be glorified again through your death and through your resurrection. And again, it's interesting how similar this sounds to another episode. Does this sound familiar at all to a voice speaking from heaven about his son? 
actually happens in two other scenarios, but the one I'm thinking of is when Jesus is baptized to begin his ministry, he's in the Jordan River and cousin John is baptizing him and he comes up out of the water and it says the heavens are opened. The Spirit of God comes down in the form of a dove and the Father speaks from heaven about his Son and says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Heaven parts, the voice from heaven speaks, this is my Son with whom I'm well pleased. Same thing. Jesus' ministry begins on this note when the Father speaks to him from heaven for the benefit of those around him. And here at the close of Jesus' ministry, you see exactly the same thing. The Father speaking from heaven, answering Jesus' prayer that the Father would be glorified, saying, I have been and I will be. Basically, you're right on track. You're doing exactly what I want you to. You know, sometimes we talked about this death and life issue last week. Sometimes you and I feel like uh, whatever we're holding on to, whatever the issue is, Lord, I don't want to let go of my life. Uh, I don't want to let go of my soul or my desire. So that praying something like Jesus does, where not my will, Lord, but yours be done, or praying, Father, glorify your name, it feels like it's pulling teeth. Have you ever prayed that where it's... uh, you're saying the words, but it's not really where you're at. You know, children, sometimes when the child says, you know, I'm uh, sitting down, but I'm standing up on the inside, and you, you pray that prayer, okay, Lord, you know, not my will. But when you and I pray that prayer, think of it this way. You're asking that God would be honored or glorified, and the truth is that that's the very best thing that could happen for any of us. That is, when God is glorified, we're edified, or we're built up, or we're encouraged. And maybe think of it in this light. When we pray, according to the model Jesus gave us for prayer, you know, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Heaven really is the place where God's will is done fully, where God is fully glorified and honored, where his will is done. That's heaven. When you and I pray, Lord, glorify yourself, we're asking basically that a little bit more of heaven be displayed on earth. Or when we say, Lord, not my will, but your will be done, we're asking God to to place a little bit more of heaven in our life instead of what might otherwise fill it. This is not a bad thing. If I say, when I pray, this prayer that's always successful, your will be done, Father, glorify yourself, I'm praying what is in the end in my own best interest that God will bring a little bit more of heaven into my life. That's a good thing. And think of it this way, too. You know, our hearts are so twisted. Our our natural hearts, uh, our fleshly, corrupt nature is so twisted that oftentimes what we want really isn't in our best interest. You know, Jesus says when you sin, it brings forth death. And a lot of times we run to do something that's sinful and we know it, and it brings death later. But we're saying that's what I really want. Well, when we pray, God, your will be done and you be glorified, we're basically praying that we'll get more life. That's what it amounts to. Because God's will, Jesus says at the end of chapter 12, God's command is life. So when we pray with Jesus, this prayer that can never fail, God, honor yourself, glorify yourself, your will be done, we're just asking for more of heaven and more of life to be made manifest in our life. This is a good thing. Some, it, takes a, it takes an attitude or perspective, though, that's bigger than right here and right now. When Jesus prays it, he knows it'll mean going through death to get to resurrection. 
and sometimes for us too. It means death to one thing or another. It doesn't mean it's always easy, but in the end, in the bigger picture, it does mean we're praying for life. We're praying for a little bit more of heaven. In verse 29, this is the funniest part of the the passage to me. Uh, It says, The crowd who stood by heard it, heard the voice from heaven, saying that it had thundered. Others were saying an angel spoke to him. Jesus said, This voice hasn't come for my sake, but for yours. Now, here's the picture. You know, Jesus prays, heaven answers. Some people say it was thunder. And others say a voice. We heard a voice, we heard words, and they just attribute it to an angel. And that's okay. They heard distinct words. They heard speech. They just aren't sure who spoke it. So the question in my mind becomes, what's the deal with the difference of assessment on these people that heard? Why did some hear thunder, only thunder, and some hear words? John records the words. They're discernible, they're audible, Everyone heard something. So then the question becomes, why did some hear only a rumble of thunder and others clearly hear distinct words? Even if they didn't know it was God the Father speaking from heaven, they heard words and they think an angel. And, you know, for the Jews at the time, this would have been common. You remember, even on the cross, they're thinking maybe an angel will come or Jesus mentions I could call angels. So this is kind of normal, but that group of people heard words. What's the difference between the two groups? They heard the same sounds. Why did they interpret it differently? And what I want to suggest is this. The reason they discerned it differently is because the attitude of their own hearts had determined what they would hear and what they would see. And this doesn't, this doesn't sound, uh, this isn't nonsensical. Um, biblically, reality and truth are morally apprehended. Truth and reality are not just an issue of a physical assessment. They aren't just an issue of academic ability. Truth and reality aren't. You could be brilliant and be insane. You could be academically astute and totally cut off from reality. They are not the same thing. Reality and truth are morally apprehended. You know, sometimes I am amazed. I'll read a passage in the Scriptures. And I'll see something I never saw before. And I ask myself, why is that? And sometimes it's no more complex than this. I wasn't ready to hear it before. It's been there all along. I couldn't see it and I couldn't hear it before because I wasn't ready to. I didn't want to in some cases. Didn't want to. In John's Gospel, you know all the way along, John paints these big portraits of miracles. These signs that Jesus does so everybody knows he's the Messiah. But what happens every time he works a miracle? Almost inevitably, just go back through the history in John's Gospel, you know, from the wine to the, 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 the sick son initially, the healing of the lame man at the pool. You remember every time what happens? A few people believe, and most don't. And you remember when we talked about this in the context of Lazarus being brought forth from the dead? Some people there believe, but what was the response of the priests and the religious leaders? There's not even an issue about did it really happen. Their only response is how do we get rid of this guy? They couldn't entertain reality. They couldn't perceive the truth that was in front of them because they didn't want to. And so here's this big group of people present when the voice speaks from heaven 
And some people only hear thunder and others hear a voice because some people had already rejected Christ and others believed in him. And think about this too. When John opens his gospel, he says, in the beginning was the word. God spoke and the word, his speech was his son, Christ. So for three years, Jesus has walked about Israel preaching God's word. He says, all I do is speak what the Father tells me. All I do is what the Father wants me to do. Three years, he's been up and down Israel speaking God's words. And what's the response been? Rejection. They've said, you're not God's spokesman, and what you say isn't true. So if Israel has rejected the clearest speech ever given in the world as far as God and God's will, it's no wonder then that they hear a voice from heaven and think it sounds like thunder. Because they thought Jesus' words were the demon speaking in some contexts or a madman in others. Do you see what I mean? So if Jesus' words for three years and the attesting miracles have been rejected, then it's no wonder that a voice speaking from heaven sounds like thunder because they'd already rejected the clear word of God in rejecting Jesus. Their predisposition to the truth is what determined what they heard. And for you and I, this, this is something to be careful about. If someone tells you something and your initial response is to reject it out of hand, you need to slow down and take that thing to the Lord and say, Lord, is, is there anything here from you? Our initial responses are not always what they should be. And sometimes we want to write something off, not because it isn't true, not because it isn't real, but because we don't want to hear it. And we don't want the implications of what that might mean for our lives. And so we hear thunder, not a clear voice. So we need to be careful what the disposition of our heart is. This comes home to roost in the rest of chapter 12 in John. And and Lord willing, we'll look at this passage next week. But this... Uh, this becomes a point of no return for us in some things or in some people's lives that you reach a point of no return where at one point you could hear God's word and discern reality and there's a point in this process in which you no longer can, which John brings up in the rest of chapter 12, which we'll look at later. Let me just mention or highlight in verse 31, I don't want to spend time on this, but Jesus says, judgment is upon the world. The ruler of this world is cast out. We could spend just a teaching on this alone, but I think Jesus is saying something like this. God the Son, the Father's perfect representative, has come to the earth, and the earth's response has been rejection. And the short-term reception as the Messiah is overturned with the cries on Friday of crucify him, crucify him. Jesus says essentially the judgment of the world is the evidence that the world gives against itself by rejecting Christ. Uh, Just for a brief illustration, if I take a white sheet, a perfectly white sheet, there's nothing wrong with it, it's a white sheet. I lay it on the floor and you walk across it with muddy boots. There's nothing wrong with the white sheet, but now it's soiled. And the soil on the sheet reflects the truth that you've got mud on your boots. So the whiteness of the sheet doesn't say anything deficient about the sheet, but it points out the fact that you've got muddy shoes. Jesus is the white sheet, and the world trumps across him. And the muddy boot prints are the evidence that he's white and pure and clear, and those who've come across him aren't. He says the ruler of this world will be cast out. You know, elsewhere it says Jesus came to destroy the works of the evil one. He came to destroy death. And while clearly 
the ruler of this world is still uh, in power, so to speak, this process of dethroning him began, or began in earnest, we might say, with the crucifixion and the resurrection. Satan still certainly, Paul calls him, still the god of this world. He's still at work, but this process of dethroning him took on power after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. And so at that point, from that point on, it's just a matter of how long until Satan's thrown out, not how. There's other passages in Luke and Revelation about Satan being cast down from heaven, Satan falling from heaven to the earth. But it begins because of the power of Jesus' death and resurrection. That's part of the judgment of the world, and it's part of the beginning of Satan being thrown from power. We'll fill the balance of our time here in verses 32 and 33. Jesus closes this section by saying, I, if I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. If I'm lifted up, uh, crucifixion, if I'm lifted up above the earth, that is, if I'm crucified, he says, I'll draw all men to myself. This seems kind of vague to me, but the Jews understand he's talking about death, as you'll see in the passage we'll look at next week. But this thing about lifted up, he said this in John eight twenty eight as well. There he said, when you've lifted up the Son of Man, you'll know that I am the one I claim to be. When you've crucified me, after the fact, after I'm lifted up, you'll recognize me. And then in John three fourteen, Jesus had said there, As Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. You remember uh, just briefly the account of the wilderness when Israel has disobeyed God again and God God is upset, so to speak, and so God sends snakes into the camp, into Israel's camp, and the bite of the snakes are lethal so that these people in Israel, they're being bitten and they're dying. And so God tells Moses, this is what I want you to do. You make a sign, a symbol of the snake. This bronze snake, you you hoist it up in the middle of the camp on a post. You lift it up where everyone can see it. And then Moses told the people, if you're bitten by this agent of death, this snake, this is all you have to do. All you have to do is turn and look at the symbol of death in the midst of the camp, look at that serpent on the post in the middle of the camp, and you'll be saved. And of course, Jesus says later, essentially, Jesus is like that serpent. He occupies the symbol of death, the Roman cross. He's lifted up above earth, and he tells people later, you've been bitten by the snake of sin and death, and all you have to do is look to me and believe, and you'll be saved. So here Jesus says, I'm going to be lifted up. I'm going to be crucified. And once that happens, I'm going to draw all men to myself. This drawing all men to myself is interesting. Again, in John's gospel, we see for the most part, some people believe, most people don't. There's plenty of reason to believe Jesus' words and the miracles, but most people don't. But Jesus says, post-crucifixion and resurrection, his person is going to take on this additional empowering, if you will, for people to be drawn to him that after his death and resurrection, somehow there's going to be a greater effect or impact on people being drawn to Christ. Now, when I read this, I will draw all men to myself. Uh, It's not that it sounds anemic, but unless you you understand what the word really means, you, you can lose a little of the impact. What does he mean when he says, draw men to myself? 
We looked at this when we studied John 6, 44. But this term is the Greek term elkuo. And we use it to say draw, but the other use is, is drag or pull. In John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, pulls him, constrains him, drags him. Listen to just a few other. There's six other instances of this. A couple others in John's Gospel. Uh, later in John 18, uh, in the garden, when Jesus is being arrested, Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it. He elkuoed it. He pulled it out of its sheath. He, he put his hand on it and he pulled it. Or in John 21, when the disciples, after the resurrection, have gone back, they're fishing on the Sea of Galilee and they're not catching anything. Jesus is there and he says... Throw your net on the right side of the boat. You'll find some. When they did, they were unable to haul. It's the same word, to drag in the net. John 21, 11, same, same story, same passage. Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. This is the same word. Three more instances in Acts and in James 2. It's about people being drug around. So I just want you to know, when Jesus says... If I'm crucified and rise again, I will draw people to myself. This isn't some anemic, uh, people will somehow be drawn to the warm light in the window, so to speak, or something like this. This is kind of, uh, this is a compelling type of word. He says they will be compelled towards me. They'll be pulled towards me. They'll be like fish in a net, drug in to me. This sound, I'm not going to get into this issue about hu- human will and God's sovereignty this morning. I just want you to know this is more of a, of a word of God sovereignly acting than it is of men somehow being drawn to the light. This isn't a soft, fuzzy term. This is a term that can mean pulled, dragged, constrained, compelled, however you want to think of it. Let me give you this as an example. Um, we live in a solar system ruled by the sun. So, you know, we've got this massive star in the midst of all these planets. And it's the sun that holds the solar system together. This morning I went out my door, I was up early enough, and Venus was rising. Huge, you know, almost too big to even think it's a star or a planet. Rising in the east. Venus, you know, this planet that's close to the sun. You know, smaller orbit, right there. Is it smaller than us? Yeah, thanks. Mercury and Venus, right? Thanks. So it's close to the sun. But then you think, well, gosh, but there's other planets. You know, there's the Earth, and we've got Saturn and Neptune. We've got Pluto. I can't, is it Pluto or Neptune, the furthest out? You know, if you're Venus, let's say, and you're close to the sun, and I don't know what your surface temperature is, but it's hot because you're so close, and you're governed by the gravity of the sun, So you're around the sun all the time. If you're Venus, you might say, yeah, you know what? I know my life is governed by the sun because I'm so hot and my orbit is so tight, I see the sun all the time. I'm right here, I'm hot and warm, and there it is. If you're Pluto, you might think to yourself, you know what? What sun? I'm cold. I'm way, way out here. I don't know about the sun. But you know what the truth is? It doesn't matter if you're Venus or Pluto. The gravity of the sun determines your orbit. You are absolutely compelled by the gravity of the sun. You can't get away from it. You know, if the sun, if somehow it could disappear, if it could vanish, become immaterial in a moment, remember that each planet is speeding through space. 
It's speeding through space. So if the gravity of the sun was somehow all of a sudden gone, what would happen? They'd just, they'd be gone. You know, whatever trajectory they were on when gravity of the sun ceased, they'd just head on straight on out. All of us would. So whether you're Venus or Pluto, the truth is your life is governed by the gravity of the sun. And it doesn't matter how far you are from it, this force of the sun is pulling you in all the time. Your life is governed by the force, by the gravity of the sun. And people on the earth today, whether they know it or not, whether they're Venus or Pluto, their lives are governed by Jesus' presence on the earth by the crucifixion and the resurrection. Absolutely. Whether they acknowledge it or they don't. Now this passage does not say that this drawing effect saves everyone. I wish it did. In God's economy, we know that doesn't happen. Some are saved and some aren't. John says, I've written so that you'll know, you'll believe, and you'll be saved. But all men are drawn in. All men are drawn in. Uh, I was talking to someone earlier this week, and we were talking about uh, marriage and children. And we were talking about the fact that sometimes people get this wrong thought in their head that somehow they're in control. And so... Someone says to themselves, a young couple says to themselves, uh, we're going to get married, we're going to work, you know, for five years, we're going to have kids in our sixth year, we're going to have three kids, you know, whatever. And how many times have you known a family who thought they had their life planned out and they had children not their sixth year, their first year? Or (laughs) they were ready for children year six and children didn't come year six or year seven or year eight. You know, but there's this mistaken thought we get in our mind that somehow we're in control and we're not. And people get this crazy thought in their mind that they're in control of their lives and they're not. And Jesus is, through the gravity, if you will, of his person and through the effect of his victory over sin and death in the crucifixion and resurrection, Jesus is the son about which every human's life revolves. And he says by his power he is pulling men and women and boys and girls into himself, which is life. Now think about this. One of the guys we quote routinely uh, here I like to and have read and many in this room have is C.S. Lewis. If you've never read his little biography and it was written fairly early in his Christian life, it's worth reading. It's called Surprised by Joy. You know, C.S. Lewis is this brainiac kid born in Belfast in Ireland and goes across and gets a good British education, you know, but he's an atheist. He's an atheist basically, too, through World War I. But, you know, Christ said, if, if I'm lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself. What was Lewis's story? Well, listen to this. These are excerpts from Surprised by Joy. In 1929, he was 31 years old. Now, here's a guy who's an atheist. He didn't want anything to do with God. But Jesus said if he was lifted up, he'd draw men to himself. He said he'd been reading some Christian books over and over again, books by Dunn and Brown, Spencer, Milton, Johnson, and Chesterton. He decided to go to town on the bus. He got on the bus an atheist. As he rode along, he reconsidered Hegel's philosophy of the absolute and festooned it with Berkeley's notion of the spirit. And I'm with the rest of you. I I don't remember Hegel, and I don't know Berkeley, but somehow this all made sense to 
Clive Staples, and what was resulted was a philosophical construct that he called God. When his stop came, he got off the bus believing that God did indeed exist. How nice of him, right? But you see, he's an atheist. He gets on the bus an atheist. He gets off a deist. He believes there's a God. He was totally opposed to God. doesn't stop there, of course. It says the first thing that happened to him was a consciousness of sin. Maybe he starts as Pluto and he's coming in as Neptune or Saturn now. He looked inside himself and he was appalled by what he saw. He says, a zoo of lusts, a bedlam of ambitions, a nursery of fears, a harem of fondled hatreds. He wanted to pray, but to whom? He did not yet know the God he believed existed. He'd just become a deist, but who is God? What is God? He says, nonetheless, I gave in and admitted that God was God, that there was a God, and I wasn't it, that God was God and prayed. And this is what he says, Perhaps that night the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. Do you see this process? He's being pulled in by the gravity of Christ. He's not coming along because he likes where it's going. He doesn't like the thought. It's not appealing to him. When he says, God, I know you're there. I know you're God. I know I'm not. He's dejected about it. He's depressed by the thought. He's kind of reluctant acknowledging reality because he doesn't like where it's taking him. And then later it says at age 32, Lewis spent an evening discussing mythology and Christianity with some intellectual friends who were Christians, one of whom was the writer J.R.R. Tolkien. They challenged him as he had never been challenged before to think critically about Jesus. After the meeting broke up, Lewis could not go to sleep. He continued to wrestle with the concept of Jesus as God in the flesh. By 3 a.m., he decided to accept Jesus as his Savior. Twelve days later, he wrote these words to Tolkien, I have passed on from believing in God to definitely believing in Christ. This is not some guy who finds Christ appealing. But Jesus said, if I'm lifted up, if I die for the sins of the world and rise from the dead, I'm going to draw men and women to myself. I love this story because it's exactly it. And one of the things as we wind down, you know that sometimes you and I know people and maybe you've shared the gospel with them or maybe you've been afraid to. You just look at them and you think, that guy will never come to Christ. You look at them from the outside and you think, Chad, what chance has that guy got of becoming a Christian? You know, some of us in this room, were the people others looked at and said, man, they'll never become a Christian. Look at them. They're Plutos. They're out there. They're way out there. They have no appeal. You know, nothing that if I've shared the gospel with them, they reject it. They don't want anything to do with this truth stuff. But you know, the truth is, this is why I love this. Stuff like this to me is liberating. When I realize again that Christ is drawing, Mike isn't. You know what? I'm free. And Christ is drawing both by his own inherent power, but also by his spirit, And then, kind of lastly, through you and me. So as Christians, we're commissioned to share the gospel, the message of Christ with others, and we need to and we should. And I don't mean to belittle this in any way. We need to be sharing the gospel. That's our commission. Sharing the truth, the reality about Christ with others. But the truth is, you and I don't win people because we present the message well. 
And even if we affirm the message of the gospel with our lives, and we should, that doesn't win people to Christ either. We might remove some impediments or some barriers, and that's all good. Don't, I'm not minimizing this at all. But you know what the truth is in the end? Jesus has thrown some fish in his net, and he's dragging them in. And Jesus has those planets in his orbit, and he's pulling them in. That's the truth in the end. That all of us in the end are Lewis's, and it might look a little different for us, but it's the power of Christ to draw men and women to himself. That's what pulls them in. And so the funny thing is that you and I, people like us, we get to be a part of the process. That's neat, and that's fun, and it's good. But the power in the end that's accomplishing the work, it's not us. It's not our articulation. It's not our vibrant Christian testimony, all of which is good. It's Christ. It's his power. It's the Spirit coming down, convicting men, just as Lewis was convicted, and exposing reality, even though it means I can't live that sinful life the way I wanted to in the past. It's the power of Christ drawing people in. And so... When you see somebody, and you, and you will, and you do, we all know people that we look at and our first thought is they'll never come to Christ. I heard an evangelist, uh, he was in the Philippines years ago. He saw an American soldier, big, burly, mean-looking guy. And he said he knew God told him to go up and share the gospel with this guy. And he, he's sharing with us at the church, he's sharing with him the conversation that went through his mind, Lord, surely you don't mean that. Look at that guy. He's mean, he doesn't want to hear about your son, he doesn't want to hear from me. And you know, he goes through the argument in his mind with the Lord, and, and he's convinced the Lord's telling him. So he goes up, he shares the gospel, the guy becomes a Christian on the spot. Because the outward appearance was misleading. And even if people, when you share the faith with them, if, they, if at first they're rejecting or whatever, don't worry about that. You know, if you were at Stephen's stoning and you saw that wretched Pharisee named Saul from the city of Tarsus, what do you think your expectation for him coming into a close orbit with Christ would be? Not very high. God drug him in. God knocks him off his horse and picks him up and says, I'm going to use you, like it or not. So when you're sharing the gospel and you're looking at others, pray for them. Pray for them. And know that God is going to draw. We get to be a part of the process. We don't accomplish the work, though. It's his power to draw men and women to himself. So let that encourage you when you see others. On this Mother's Day, let me encourage you two things, uh, whether you're a mom or not. Pray for that prayer that never fails. Be willing, come to the grips in your own mind. The reality is when you pray that God's will be done, you're praying for life in your own life. And you're praying for a little bit more of heaven where God's will is perfectly done to be revealed on earth. This is a good thing. Even if it looks negative at the time, life and heaven, these are good things. And the other thing is this, it's to remember that Jesus is doing the work the gravity of his person and the power of his resurrection is actually drawing people to himself, whether they think it or not, whether they want it or not. And you and I get to be a part of the process, but we're not responsible for it in the end. This is liberating, and it should leave us freer to share the gospel with folks that we might otherwise think, no chance. Or if they've heard it once and rejected it, doesn't matter. 
Lewis's process, this was a process of years with people who shared the gospel consistently, lived the life, walked the talk, so to speak. And you know, God was pulling him in. And it happened in the end. So this is a great encouragement to me to keep sharing the gospel, to keep representing Christ because we just don't know how God's at work to pull those folks in. Let's pray. Lord, I'm thrilled to know that all you require of us is obedience. You don't ask us to win the race. You don't ask us to save people by our own strength or philosophy or intellectual acumen. Lord, you just ask us to be faithful, to talk about your son. Lord, I pray that we are free enough morally that we can apprehend more and more of your reality and the truth. And that, Lord, with an enlightened mind, we can pray more and more consistently, your will be done. Glorify your name. Father, I pray, especially on Mom's Day, on Mother's Day, that the mothers in our midst would apprehend more and more of your life and your blessing and your determination to bless and honor them for their service to you. And Lord, I pray that you'd help each of us be uh, absolutely unburdened as we share Christ with others, knowing that you're performing your work. I pray that we are, in a sense, lighthearted, not weighed down, but that we carry with us the aroma of Christ, Lord, and that we realize and remember that you're at work to accomplish your will and that we happily get to be agents of change through your power, but you're the one accomplishing the work. Father, thanks that our salvation, our taste of life, our future happiness with you is all because Jesus became that grain of wheat. Jesus suffered death on the cross. Jesus rose from the dead for us and to honor you. And Lord, we thank you and praise you again in his name. Amen.